Now we will move on to Brexit and it was kind of an extraordinary week and we can anticipate a fairly extraordinary week uh, next week as well. As somebody who has sat around tables at various times, uh, Dermot Horn, what do you make of it? Oh, I think there's been a big change. I think um, despite the fact that um, Irish government ministers and the Taoiseach uh, over the last number of weeks have emphasised that the negotiations can't be bilateral, they have to be between uh, the EU and the UK, uh, I think the deal-breaker, it seems, um, uh, was uh, Leo's uh, visit uh, over to Johnson. Um, The soundings coming from that meeting, uh, the very fact, particularly from the Irish side, um, uh, the British side being very quiet for 24 hours. The DUP uh, had completely gone to ground, w- w- suggested to me that something pretty major the had been agreed. Said it. Um, the fact that uh, Stephen Barclay, um, the Brexit um, negotiator on behalf of the UK, was over with Barney the next day. Um, the fact that uh, the discussions uh, intensified, not in the tunnel, as they say, but um, These clear... stupid language, clear, but anyway... Clear um, that something pretty major was happening. I suspect that um, the the uh, Taoiseach and Johnson have agreed something and that it's subject to the imprimatur of the EU. Um, I think the EU will look at it uh, very closely to make sure that it doesn't uh, affect their single market, um, the integrity of that. Um, yeah, I think I mean, quite a number of the articles are stressing this, that well, it's I, not just the love of us, no, if no, you know no, what I no, mean. It's to no, do no. with that border oh, yeah, and absolutely. not having a I mean, there will be no sentiment uh, at EU level in relation to this issue. Um, either it, uh, they can be guaranteed that uh, bad standard uh, goods uh, will perhaps leak into the EU or whatever. They will make sure, and the bigger countries, particularly Germany and France, will make sure want want to make sure yeah. that the UK are not taking advantage of of a leaky uh, situation yeah. on the island of Ireland in order to, in effect, undercut their goods. So uh, and and indeed your common or garden smuggling. But but I think just reading through the stuff that necessity to have a border mm. between the EU and the UK when they're gone yeah, yeah. is, is yeah, critical yeah. And, to them. And for us, you know, if there is a win in it, it's the fact that it's not going to be on our border. Um, and, you know, if if that is ultimately the situation, it's 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 a great situation for the island of Ireland. Um, you know, I see some some uh, paper reports now saying that the some of the loyalist people are up in arms about it. Uh, when you hear uh, the 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 leader of the NFU, the um, farmers union, he was on uh, RT yesterday, um, giving an interview. Uh, the vast majority of the people uh, uh, of both traditions in the north understand now that they may not have understood two or three years ago yeah. fully the implications of a border um, on the island of Ireland, soft, hard, or otherwise. Um, that it will have a detrimental effect, particularly uh, on the north of Ireland. And uh, I, I think, even though their politicians aren't uh, saying saying it, I think behind it all, I'd say you will have a sizable number of the DUP who might wish that Boris would just go and do the deal. Right. Uh, they'll kick up, but you'll hear an awful lot of nice words about the constitutional issue being guaranteed, etc., yeah. etc. Et I'm going to go to London um, for a moment, but... 
it, you know, at these critical times and uh, relations and pushing old pains and scratching old scabs and all of that, do you think that there's enough wit around the place for nobody to say, oh, that was a climb down from them, oh, that was a victory for them, oh, that was thing, and so-and-so won and so-and-so lost, and just go at it very gently? I think the trick of all negotiations is that, is that uh, uh, it, it has to be agreed that neither side comes out you know, delighted, yeah. uh, with a smile on their face. Um, th- I think it's important that there is uh, a give on both sides. So, in other words, there's going to have to be some pain for us. Yeah. Uh, it won't be the full backstop. Um, but equally so, um, there will be pain for the other side. So, uh, uh, that's the we little balance. We need a fudge, and, don't know, we? Uh, the, the whole, you, Tell you, us about I, the I never saw a t- tunnel when I was out in, um, in Brussels, but the whole idea of the tunnel is that there would be no... You keep your trap shut. Exactly. It's a, yeah. it's a mythical tunnel, basically. Yeah, and and the other thing is constructive ambiguity. Oh, I think that... Tell us about the time <laughs> you were talking. Was it to Fischler? About fishing in uh, Fischler, about <laughs> fishing in Ireland. Well, uh, when I was Minister for Marine, there was an issue about the Irish box. It was it was it was a, a mythical box around Ireland uh, to preserve juvenile fish, and um, it was called the Irish box for for decades. And it basically, it was a protected area where other uh, member states of the European Union couldn't come in and fish. Um, are only on on certain conditions, and um, we were losing it under uh, um, a move at the Fisheries Council. It went on for as long as I was in in the department, but anyway, um, I was getting nowhere. And eventually, I I, I got on 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 the government jet, especially to go out and uh, have a, a lunchtime meeting with uh, Franz Fischler, who was the um, Commissioner for Agriculture and and Fisheries. Uh, I met him out in Crete uh, beside a lovely swimming pool. I bought him a beer. God, they'll be going spare listening I to bought this. Him a, anyway, I, yeah. I bought him a beer and I said, Franz, I need a box. I, does, I said, I don't care what size it is uh, as long as I can tell the Irish people that I have a box. Um, and eventually uh, we agreed that I w- we would have a box. He said, you can call it what you like at home you can call it an Irish box at home, but when you come to Brussels at the meetings, you have to call it um, an area of uh, sensitive, a sensitive area for juvenile fish. And uh, we got our Irish box, um, and the fishermen were happy, and, you know, that's there to this a day. Language so in, in all of things, it, it's the language that matters. Mm-hmm. And it also is, as I come back to what I said earlier, um, I had equally in in that I remember uh, uh, coming out of the the final meeting when we agreed that um, I was even though it was a win for the Irish uh, I was very particular when I I did uh, I remember the six o'clock news live from the RT from from Luxembourg I think it was to to say look you know we're 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 uh, the meeting has ended and we have an agreement um, you know there's some things that we don't like uh, but by and large we're we're in agreement the Spanish minister went on his national TV saying it was national sabotage um, and I was delighted with this because um, as I say it's very important what mm, people say language language tone, is very, very important tone matters too let me go to London uh, just for the moment to get a little bit of figuring out. Uh, perspectives from over there and we're going to Dennis Staunton uh, of the Irish Times in London. Uh, Morning, Dennis. Good morning, Marion. 
I suppose the general question, first of all, I mean, this is an awful lot of information has been kept very quiet, though I gather spokespeople are out on the telly this morning um, on your side of the, of the water. How do you read it? Well, I think uh, it's interesting what you were just uh, just listening to for the conversation you were just having about uh, about these negotiations and fudge. I think in a funny way, this is a different one because for, if you looked at where the positions were until a few days ago, both sides had red lines which were so firm they couldn't uh, budge from them. So on the British side, it was that Northern Ireland had to leave the European Customs Union along with the rest of the United Kingdom. There were no two ways about it and that had to happen. And then from the Irish and European point of view, you couldn't have any kind of customs border on the island of Ireland, and the European Union needed to know what's coming into the single market. So you, it, it was one of those situations where you couldn't really expect either of them to move far enough from their red lines where they'd be able to meet in the middle and get covered by a layer of fudge. And so what they had to find, I think, was a solution which was a creative one that actually respected all of their red lines. And one of the things that has emerged, and I, uh, this, you know, obviously for a lot of this, because of the silence, we're do- using a kind of Colleen Rooney uh, process of deduction or elimination. But in this, I, I do know... <laughs> well, that, she says she's good at it. Well, exactly, and maybe she's right, who knows. But anyway, but the thing is that what I do know is that uh, the European Union, from their point of view, they, uh, they maintain that, have, you know, that it's not necessary. They didn't have a red line about Northern Ireland having to remain in the European Customs Union. And they thought that there could be a solution in the so-called customs partnership. And what this model would mean would be that Northern Ireland would actually leave the, uh, the European Customs Union and would be part of the UK customs territory, so that if the UK went off and did new trade deals around the world, they would apply to Northern Ireland as well. But what you would do would be that you'd administer Northern Ireland as if it was still part of the EU Customs Union. And so you'd have customs checks on the Irish Sea, you'd have customs declarations, or at least you'd have that kind of information coming in. And that had the advantage that uh, the Europeans would know what's coming into Northern Ireland and so what could be coming into the single market. And then you have this sort of system of rebates, which could be elaborate or complicated, where if there's a tariff uh, that people in Northern Ireland would pay the EU tariff, but if the UK tariff was lower, they'd get their money back. Right. Can I and just pause you there for a yes. second, Dennis? Because we have the um, the the top notch in, in taxation uh, with us in studio in the form of Suzanne Kelly. That sounds so complicated that if you were in business, you'd just say, "Look, what I'll throw in the towel." Well, I kind of think I understand it, <laughs> but I could be wrong. Well, if you don't. <laughs> But I do remember, do you remember those old distinctions years ago on the North between de jure and de facto? In other words, de jure, according to laws, was one way, but in de facto, it was another way. And then we dropped our de jure claim to the North and we said we recognised the factual position. Well, I think this is the same kind of uh, agreement again. What will happen will be, according to law, the North will step outside the customs, the, the customs arrangements that are operating in Europe. But in fact, they will consent to operate a borderless situation between the North and the South. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to organise a structure to suit that. So according to law, uh, Boris will be able to go back to the English Parliament and say, we are out of the custom union, I have achieved my objective, we are winners. And on our side, we'd be able to say, effectively, we have no border for customs purposes. Now what it all will come down to is 
converting that into some kind of language and, and making sure that you can trust what people say about well, it. Well, 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 trust comes in but very... I, I, just a, the, a, yes, a, a word of caution. I mean, the EU operates on legal certainty and I think what uh, Barnier and co are doing at the moment is looking to make sure that from a legal point of view, and it's not the, uh, de facto, they will have no ambiguity in this because France and Germany and the other countries will insist that this doesn't have a possible precedent for some other areas around Europe that might also exploit this as a loophole. Right. Mind you, I'm sure Scotland is thinking about it, but let me go back, if I may, to London. So, Dennis, what is going to happen now? Explain what happens this week, you know, with the the Queen's speech and what it means and all of that. So what happens today is that around lunchtime, Boris Johnson is going to brief his cabinet on a conference call, tell them more or less what's happening. Again, I think even the cabinet has been kept out of the loop on most of this stuff. Then later today, uh, Michel Barnier will give an update to EU ambassadors in Brussels. And then this evening, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel are meeting for dinner. Not specifically about this, but no doubt they'll be able to talk about it. And Boris Johnson will be talking to them. So the idea being to try to get uh, some support and to kind of work over whatever the details and the because of are. Angela Merkel fairly slapped him down last week, didn't she? Yes, she did, and I think she, uh, you know, by the sound of things, uh, from, from what I understand, she actually did say the things that uh, Downing Street said she said, but perhaps she didn't say them in exactly the same way, and she probably didn't think that all of this was going to be leaked out and published immediately afterwards. But she, uh, but certainly she did slap him down, and that was, uh, and so at the beginning of the week there were there were very hostile briefings coming out of Downing Street. The mood has changed. So tomorrow uh, the Queen's speech happens. Well, that is, uh, it's the Queen reads out a speech where she sets out the legislative program of her government for the uh, for the new parliamentary session it'll be a bit kind of unreal because she'll be uh, really really reading out the conservative manifesto for the next election because yes. Boris Johnson doesn't have a majority none of the things he's go- that she's going to read out will he hasn't got a chance of, be- of being able to affect them and anyway we're all expecting an election within weeks so uh, anyway she, the, the innovation there is she won't wear her crown because um, it's very heavy oh. she apparently <laughs> will not be wearing the crown tomorrow so oh, anyway, that's not a political statement it apparently is not no I think it's a statement of just as the age of 90 whatever you I'm don't fair want. enough a yeah. couple of kilos on your head. Right, um, okay. So, um, so, uh, so then uh, what happens is the, uh, that uh, in Brussels, this, these negotiations, these intensive negotiations continue in the so-called tunnel, and you should have, in normal circumstances, you ought to have a deal kind of done and ready by Tuesday if that's to go to the meeting of the European Council the EU leaders on Thursday. But there's some suspicion, partly because of some things people have been saying, including Leo Varadkar, who said, I think we'll be able to get a deal in the coming weeks. And he said this on Thursday. So there's some question, maybe the deal won't be ready in time for the summit. So maybe Michel Barnier, if things are going well, uh, will go to the leaders and say, I think there's sufficient progress to keep talking. And so you all talk about something else on Thursday and Friday, and we'll come back to you kind of next week when we're ready. But the problem is that Boris Johnson has a, a deadline because on Saturday, when Parliament will be sitting for the first time Very since the Falkland War on a Saturday, yeah. um, he, according to the law, there's the so-called Ban Act, he has got to, if he hasn't got a deal done by the 19th next Saturday, he has got to request an extension to Britain's membership of the European Union. Just say that to me again. If he hasn't got it approved by the EU... 
by then? Yes, if there is no deal approved by the EU by the 19th and, uh, and it has also not been approved by the, uh, by the Parliament. So in other words, if he has a deal approved by the EU on the 17th, he can bring it back and put it to a vote on the 19th. And if it passes in Parliament, then he's in the clear. But if, uh, if the deal either hasn't been done with Europe or it's rejected in Parliament, then he has got to uh, request a, a delay to Brexit by three months till the end of uh, January. And he's supposed to write a letter. The letter They've actually taken the trouble of writing the letter for him into the law. And so he has to write that letter. Now, he keeps saying, I'm not going to do it. And there's like ditch, some all that. legal challenge. But what the interesting thing about this, though, is that, you know, uh, he, while he's kind of, you know, messing around about whether he's going to do it or not, if these negotiations carry on, it could be then in, you get into the following week, so the 21st, 23rd, 24th of, of October, and by a, at a certain stage, he or somebody will have to write a letter making the request for the extension. And let's imagine at that stage there is a deal being formed. Well, then this whole question of the extension becomes part of the negotiation so that the Europeans can say, or so he can say, okay, now I've got this deal. I actually will need a bit of an extension for a few weeks just to get this through all the stages in Parliament, but just a technical extension. So I'd like to request this extension and, uh, you know, under the law, I have to request it for three months. But actually, you know what? A month would do me. And then they could say if they wanted to be helpful, okay, a month you've got and that's all you're getting. And what that does then is that it, it creates a pressure in Parliament because the Europeans are basically saying to MPs, you choose this deal or it's no deal because we're not giving any more time. And how, how are the numbers shaping up? I mean, it was reported yesterday that there were uh, 10 um, Labour MPs who would be vill- willing to vote with him. It looks, given what how Rhys Mogg is quoted today, that he's going to bring the ERG with him. Yeah. Question mark over the DUP? Yes. Now, I think it's interesting, if you look at this interview that, uh, that Nigel Dodds gave to La Repubblica yesterday, uh, or short remarks, basically he said, uh, you know, and it sounded very tough, we will not accept anything that uh, leaves us behind in the European Customs Union. We must be full members of the UK Customs Territory. And, of course, under the proposals, as I understand them at least, he'd get his wish. He wouldn't be left behind in the European Customs Union. So, to some extent, they're battling against a straw man. And, uh, and so I think there's a decent chance... Uh, at least, that you get the DUP on side. And Downing Street is very much in touch with the DUP. Okay. One of the people at that meeting on Thursday was John Bew, historian, son of the, uh, uh, the historian Bew. Paul yeah. Bew. And John Bew uh, has a very good understanding of Austro-Unionism, and he also has been in regular contact with the DUP. So I think he would have a, a fairly good sense of what they could bear. OK, can I just go to you, Dermot Aaron? You wanted to bring in the question of Corbyn, because Corbyn said he'd Cor- 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 Corbyn apparently has said that um, Labour are not going to vote for any deal by Boris Johnson or coming out of the meeting with Leo Varadkar, which is surprising uh, in that he probably hasn't even seen the details of the deal, um, given that the British cabinet haven't seen the details of of the agreement. So um, it's still a um, pretty uh, difficult issue as to whether it'll pass the... But the one other thing I just want to point out, I can't see personally how an agreement will be ready for the summit this week. Um, I think it's inevitable Too that much some, work. some yes, I mean the EU doesn't work 
that fast. And um, I would I suspect... Can I something that on Corbyn, uh, Marianne? Yes, certainly. Because uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, what we do know about Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is that he wants to uh, abandon the so-called level playing field commitments. And so what he's looking for is actually a very hard Brexit. He wants Britain out of the customs union, out of the single market. Which is all so bad the, for us anyway. But you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Colin yeah. McCarthy wrote a very good piece in the Sunday Independent. That's right, this yes. Morning. But also, the fact is that from uh, Jeremy Corbyn's point of view and the Labour point of view, what this looks like is a bonfire of regulations protecting workers' rights, environmental rights. So, so Corbyn's a problem with this deal is not so much about what it does about the border or Northern Ireland. It's actually the rest of it. It's the rest of the uh, of the direction that Boris Johnson wants to move in. Okay, um, I was going to to bring you, but just they've they've told me from outside. The Home Secretary Priti Patel told the BBC's Andrew Marr show this morning that progress had been made by Boris Johnson in the talks, but she repeated a statement that it would not be acceptable for Northern Ireland to be treated differently to the rest of the UK. On under any customs arrangement. Well, I presume that can be wheeled around a small bit because it is treated differently in, in some other ways at the moment. I haven't come to you yet, Kevin. Um, your your take on it, both politically here and the coverage in the paper. Yeah, well, the first thing is uh, that uh, Michel Barnier is apparently, uh, from what I hear, he's on your team. He hates the word tunnel as well. Oh, I uh, do think it's ludicrous. And apparently you will never hear Michel Barnier actually say oh, the tunnel. Man. He always talks about these intense negotiations. So I think it's the the, the broadcast behind the scenes that have created that. But to go back to your point, I think about what victory looks like for either the British side or the Irish side. And I'll never forget back in December 2017, standing outside government buildings on a cold December morning and they had the lecterns there and we waited for hours and hours for this press conference that had been called with Leo Varadkar where we were going to hear about, I think it was only being conceived as the backstop at that stage, but essentially what was the original was Northern the Ireland one, deal yeah. that Theresa May had done before Arlene Foster got wind of it uh, and was straight on a plane to London. And I remember looking through the gates as they took the lecterns back inside the building uh, that particular day. So I think Dublin will be very slow this time to, to declare victory or to but declare but surely this lower that, the line. that's the lesson of this week and the, the meeting outside Liverpool is that the optics were so much better. They have, I think the Irish and British have learned they a learned lot, an awful lot about managing the optics. We had, you know, pictures of them walking through the woods, but there was this no double lectern. And Lucinda Creighton was writing about that played today. so badly. Mm. There was no quoting classical analogies at... Boris Johnson. There was none of that and clunky it's, it's, stuff. It's interesting as well that relations, strangely, between Varadkar and Johnson do seem to be better. I mean, there was huge shock in Dublin on Tuesday. We were all a bit distracted with the budget, but one, one person in government said... Which we'll be coming to shortly. Downing yeah. Street flamed Angela Merkel. They were shocked that Downing Street could brief in the way that they did against Angela Merkel. So there was a lot of fear, I think, um, among Varadkar's people about going over to that meeting Well, one Liverpool. of the things that apparently Angela Merkel said to them I said to, was it him? Whoever, whoever. Yes, said to Boris Johnson, um, it would be easier for Germany to leave the EU than for Britain to leave the EU because of the peace process, yeah. Northern Ireland, violence and history. But yeah. that's the piece about Brexit that is so difficult, is that it is this thing of pressing on old wounds all the time. I mean, for a German Prime Minister to say that to a British Prime Minister 
does then, I suppose, create the context for the subsequent flaming that happened and indeed the reaction of the tabloid press, which captured precisely, you know, how dare, I think the term crouch was used. Oh, um, was it? Yeah. The things uh, are so strange. There's a great line in, in Tim Shipman's piece in the Sunday Times today where he's talking about the civil servants in Downing Street and how they knew the moment that okay, things got serious. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've all become very familiar with Dominic Cummings, but apparently the, the moment that everyone around Boris Johnson realised this is real, there's actually movement here, was when they saw Dominic Cummings in a suit because he looks more usually like one of the Extinction Rebellion protesters outside number 10 than a civil servant inside. And that's the bizarreness of where we're at. But, but that, they did say it. it looked like a suit that he'd borrowed from someone else. Yeah, yeah, from a charity shop. Uh, Dermot, you want what to- I find refreshing uh, is uh, the fact that um, an awful lot of our European colleagues actually understand uh, the issue on, on Northern no, Ireland, Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, the all-island economy. Uh, it, it's really refreshing to hear people like Merkel say these things, but also the spokespersons for the European Commission when they come and do the press conferences. Um, I've, I've seen quite a few of them. And I was astounded at the knowledge that they knew and, and they were able to answer everything uh, and they uh, they fully understand, which I think is, is, yeah. is good from our point of view. Yeah, because I was watching uh, one of the press previews last night, um, I think it was from Sky, uh, and the contributors still kind of saying, what in the name of God is all this stuff about Ireland? I don't think they're as well informed. I'll, I'll, I'll go to, to, to Dennis on this, and, and this could be nonsense. Uh, but I get the feeling that they're not as well informed um, in Britain about the details of the North, the island of Ireland, Ireland... And the history of violence and all that. No, I think that's true. And it's also, of course, the fact that the uh, you know, the only political party from Northern Ireland that's represented in Parliament is the DUP. We also have an independent unionist, uh, Lady Harmon. <coughs> and so the only people who are there speaking in the, in the chamber are people who are saying there's nothing to worry about here, that actually there's no danger, there's no threat to peace from, uh, from any of this stuff. Yeah. And so, so that's part of it. I think that all the other thing which some of them find hard to bear uh, and to understand is that for the first time in centuries, the Irish are part of the bigger, more powerful side in a dispute. And that sort of feels wrong to some Certain certain kinds of people here. Counterintuitive. It just yeah exactly and sort of and there's also just this sense of a small country getting in the way. If only you know these people would get out of the way with their backstop, we could just talk directly to Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, sort this stuff out. I mean it'd be the same if it was another small country in Europe that they just they just sort of feel as if it's the sort of tail wagging the dog stuff. And I think I think that's where you get some of the intemperate. Yeah. And it's probably understandable in one sense. We're, well, what, less than 1%. But it's the whole business of violence and history and killing and all of that stuff that we don't want to go back to. Yes, and I think, well, I suppose the point is that, you see, again, what some of the Brexiteers would say is that by even speaking like that, that you're pandering to, uh, to, yeah. to, to, to violent people and saying that you're going to allow them to determine what you do about a big constitutional issue. Uh, but certainly you're right. I mean, there's just, you know, there's much, uh, much lower awareness or sensitivity to the idea that, you know, the arrangements that you would make on the border about things they regard as technical, right. uh, that those could actually lead to violence. Okay, this day next week, uh, where will we be, Dennis? 
Uh, we'll, we'll be uh, we'll be. Uh, I'll be uh, here, but apart from yeah. that, <laughs> we'll be back. We'll have had a um, we'll have had the summit, and we'll have had this uh, day in Parliament. And so uh, either we might have a deal, or maybe we'll be still waiting for a deal, and they'll be arguing in Parliament about extensions and delays. But I think Brexit won't have happened. Okay. Do you think that Corbyn will whip all of... This is the last question I can see pleading out there. I have to take a break. Uh, that Corbyn will whip the Labour Party successfully to block anything? He will certainly whip them to uh, vote against it. The question is how many of them rebel. There are all these Labour MPs who have been saying uh, they're dying to vote for a deal, they'd love to vote for a deal, but they'll never vote for the deal that's presented to them. Okay. And so, uh, so I think he'll whip... If, uh, most of them will follow his lead, but the, the question is how many of them will... Okay. Yeah, it's all very interesting and very important. Uh, but anyway, we will leave it there. And Dennis Staunton, Irish Times and London, thank you very, very much indeed, and we'll take a break.